Okay, yes, as uh, Sean mentioned, this is the third week in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'll remind you of a series that we actually looked at last year, which was in an Old Testament book called the Book of Daniel. Do you remember going through Daniel? And Daniel is that strange book. It's, it's called, the genre is called apocalyptic because it's filled with all sorts of strange symbols, bizarre kind of imagery. At least it gets that way toward the end of the book. And in that book of Daniel, in chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And it's a very strange vision of all sorts of... In fact, it's in uh, a lot of uh, children's Bible, uh, Bibles try and depict this. And it's so bizarre. It's these beasts coming out of the sea. They're strange hybrid animals uh, with all sorts of different features. And they are supposed to represent four uh, coming world empires. And then, uh, after he sees these, uh, these beasts rise out of the sea, he sees God. Daniel sees God, and he calls God the Ancient of Days. This is what he says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So then Daniel sees these four nations that are coming getting judged, uh, essentially at, at what appears to be the end of history. And this is all, uh, this is all um, uh, still to come. And then having seen these four nations representing humanity to come, and having seen God on his throne, Daniel sees another figure, an extremely a, a strange and sort of um, confusing figure. This is what he says. And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages served him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so the question that comes out of a passage like that is, who is this son of man who actually comes to, to God himself and then receives the kingdom, the dominion, all peoples, everyone worshipping him, serving him? About 600 years after all of that was written, a, a, a largely obscure Jewish teacher uh, emerged and he started to refer to himself as the Son of Man. That was his favourite way to refer to himself. And it was actually uh, something that would obscure his identity because the, the term Son of Man uh, is just a generic term for human being. He just said, I'm a, I'm a human being. I'm a Son of Man. But... If he is actually this son of man, of Daniel 7, the implications are astounding, aren't they? He is uh, the one who, who has all authority. Now, this secret of Jesus' identity is actually what Mark is structured around. Uh, Jesus' identity is not revealed until chapter 8. Um, and before then, everything's quite hushed up. Uh, we saw in the reading that was just read there, Jesus will perform a healing and then he'll tell the person who was healed, now don't tell anyone about that. 
or the demons will cry out, you are the son of God, and he'll say, shh, not yet. And Jesus' identity is not revealed until the middle of the book. This is, if you like, the fourth path through Mark. We've been talking about this path series that we're doing. I'm not sure if you remember the three paths that we're sort of trying to look at, so I'll I'll recap them for you. The path uh, that Jesus takes geographically from Galilee to Jerusalem, the path that he takes uh, from the start of his ministry, his baptism, toward the cross, and the path that then we take as disciples following him. The fourth path, if you like, is toward the revealing of the mystery of Jesus' identity. And as we go along we start to recognize that this, this son of man, this son of man is far more than any ordinary human being. Actually, the magnitude of what Jesus starts to say and starts to do and starts to claim for himself, the authority he starts to take to himself, leave us confronted with the prospect that this humble carpenter's son, this Jewish rabbi, is actually the son of man of Daniel 7 to whom belongs all authority. Authority is the theme of our passage today. Uh, If you don't have it open there, please turn to Mark chapter 2. We're in Mark chapter 2 and 3. And the theme that hits you again and again is the authority of Christ as it starts to come to light in the early chapters of this gospel. Firstly, authority to choose his own disciples. Secondly, authority to define true devotion to God. And thirdly, authority over rival spiritual powers. So firstly, authority to choose his own disciples. Have a look at verse 13 of chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. You might not notice it as you read through uh, the Gospel of Mark or the Gospels in general, but crowds are mentioned constantly, over and over and over again. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's swarmed. You think uh, the taste of Tasmania when you're queuing up and you're trying to get through the crowds and people are annoyingly putting stuff on chairs to save them and there's all sorts of uh, just commotion. Think about that and multiply it by, I don't want to be too extreme, multiply that by, say, five And that's what Jesus is dealing with all the time. You see the kind of language in this passage that the crowd was pressing around him, that he feared, in fact, that the crowd would crush him, that he asked the disciples to put a boat out into the ocean when he was on the, uh, into the lake, rather, when he was on the shore, because he was afraid that the crowd was going to press around him so much, he wouldn't actually have room on the shore to teach them. Crowds were constantly coming to Jesus from every corner. And Jesus uh, always had compassion on the crowds. It was his custom every time a crowd gathered to teach them and to heal them. But Jesus never mistook crowds of nameless, faceless people for true disciples. Never. And in fact, when he taught these crowds, very often he would say things that would deliberately divide them so that they would recognize, am I actually truly here as a disciple of Christ or am I here for some other reason? We're going to see that in the next uh, chapters that are dealt with next week in the parable of the sower. 
But it's interesting that in our passage here, crowds are contrasted with individuals a couple of times. Did you notice that? So in the reading, uh, in what I just read then, uh, he went out beside the sea, the crowd was coming to him, and as the crowd came to him, he saw an individual, Levi, at the tax booth. Or in chapter 3, if you just turn quickly to chapter 3 and verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. And then verse 13... And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And we get then a list of uh, specific names of Peter and James and John and the disciples. Crowds contrasted with individuals. You see, crowds come to Jesus for various different reasons. Maybe they had a sick daughter and they were so desperate and they heard of this healer and so they went out to find him uh, to have her healed. Maybe they uh, were in need of some, some teaching and they thought, my life is a shambles and I need to hear from a, a wise and learned rabbi. Or maybe they just heard about uh, this guy making some commotion and the Pharisees didn't like him and something controversial was going on and they said, I, I need to check it out and see what's happening. Crowds come to Jesus for all sorts of reasons and they come largely on their own terms. But disciples are called by Jesus, chosen by Jesus, and they're chosen on his terms and for his reasons. That's what's so striking about the calling of Levi here. Again, back in chapter 2 and verse 14. You see, Levi is not part of the crowd at all. Levi, in fact, has not come to Jesus for any reason. He's sitting at his tax booth at his place of business, uh, just performing his tasks. And as this crowd mobs Jesus and presses around and wants to get close to the action, Jesus himself actually looks toward Levi at his tax booth and he says two simple words, follow me. And at that, Levi instantly gets up, leaves his entire livelihood and follows Jesus. The, the conversion is so radical and so instant that when you read a lot of commentators on this, they want to sort of fill in the gaps for you. And they say, well, probably, you know, Levi knew Jesus. He was sitting at the tax booth. He'd been hearing Jesus' message for a while and mulling it over. And now was the moment that he decided to come. But actually, the first three Gospels all record this account. And they all record it exactly the same way. This instantaneous Levi just sitting, doing his own thing, and Jesus calling him. A bit like our friend Jacob, who was recently baptized. He said, I wasn't seeking Jesus at all. I was living a very good life. I was concerned for my diet, my work, and then he called me. This is what happened to Levi. Here's what Bonhoeffer says about this text, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, our text regards the immediate sequence of call, follow me, and response, Levi leaving his tax booth, as a matter of crucial importance. It displays not the slightest interest in the psychological reasons for a man's religious decisions and why. For the simple reason that the cause behind the immediate following of call by response is Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus who calls. And because it is Jesus, not for any other reason, because it is Jesus, Levi follows at once. You see, this is the authority of Jesus. That simply because he is who he is, and simply when he chooses to call authoritatively, as he calls, Levi follows. And this sense of being chosen specifically by Jesus, no doubt it would have been very acute for those first 12 disciples because they heard him physically, Jesus, calling their name. 
But that sense of being chosen was not just something that uh, was true of the first 12 disciples, but it's actually a concept that pervades the New Testament for all disciples, not just the original 12, but for all disciples. You get this sense uh, from all of the authors, Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John, all of them speak of this, that we are not, as disciples of Christ, simply a nameless, faceless crowd who have put up our hands and said, I want to follow Jesus. But we are actually those who have been called by name. As Ephesians 1 puts it, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. It was God's initiative in Christ. And it strikes me that um, of the many terms that are available to us as Christians in terms of how we identify ourselves, the ones that we've chosen are the ones, I think, these days that, that often emphasize our own action. We call ourselves Christians. I think mostly we call ourselves Christians. And that carries this connotation of, uh, I, I've signed up for a religion. I'm part of the Christian religion. I'm a Christian. Or we might call ourselves believers. I have put my faith in Jesus. And both of those are perfectly biblical terms and true. But actually, the New Testament overwhelmingly uses terms to describe us that stress God's action. Have you noticed that? Overwhelmingly, we're called saints because God himself has made us holy. We're called, uh, sometimes we're just called loved or loved ones or beloved because God has such affection for us. We're called loved. And over and over again, we're called the elect or the chosen or God's chosen ones because he has chosen us. You see, our chosenness is supposed to form our fundamental identity as Christians and therefore impact our entire life. When we live our lives as Christians, we are not supposed to think, well, I've signed up to become a Christian, now I better act like one. I've signed up to become a Christian and all my friends and family know I'm a Christian, so I better put on the performance. But instead, we're supposed to say, no, God has chosen me and now being a Christian is my natural birthright. God has adopted me into his family and now it's natural for me to live as his son or as his daughter. As Paul says in Colossians 3, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. These things flow from our fundamental identity. And in a sense, you know, this is one of many points in this sermon This is more than a point. This is more than a sort of take that away with you. This is what the New Testament actually bases our fundamental identity on. This is the most important thing about you. More important than the state of your marriage. More important than the state of your finances. More important than the state of your health. More important even than your efforts for God is the fact that God has chosen you. And that is your fundamental identity that you must affirm to yourself daily and live from. So, Jesus chooses his own disciples. The conversion of Levi turns into a feast. Uh, Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, that is, Jesus reclining at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
So there's this feast of tax collectors, and we find out later that there are also some scribes and Pharisees watching on. That was sort of the nature of houses in the, in the uh, Middle East at this time, that actually you could have strangers, uninvited guests, could sort of watch on in the courtyard and so on. It's very natural when we read this account of this, uh, of this dinner feast to sort of think we know uh, who the good guys and who the bad guys are here. We've been well trained as Christians, and so we say, well, there are some uh, tax collectors there, and they're, of course, the misunderstood sort of outcasts. And then there are the Pharisees, and they're the, you know, they're the self-righteous, uh, greedy, and, um, and completely devoid of goodness um, religious leaders. But if we want to view this through first century eyes, we've got to recognize that the early readers of this would have said the Pharisees, they're, they're, I mean, maybe we sneer about them behind their back here and there, but actually they're respected religious leaders. The Pharisees were the ones who, uh, when the Romans had come and they had occupied Israel, their enemies, the Pharisees had remained pure. They had remained devoted to the law of God with all of these pressures uh, on them to, to sell out uh, to the Romans, they hadn't done so. They'd remained pure. And the tax collectors were the ones who had done the exact opposite. So these Jewish tax collectors, they had sold out to the Romans immediately. Uh, tax collectors used to bid for the privilege of being able to tax their own people in a certain realm. And so you can imagine, uh, before anything else is said, just uh, how much they would have been despised. But on top of that, they would take more than what they were owed. Uh, in order to make more for themselves. Essentially what the tax collectors had done is they had sacrificed family, friends and nation on the altar of their own greed. That's what they'd done. They're not poor outcasts, they're actually rich capitalists. Don't think the, sort of the poor beggar, think like Jeff Be Bezos or someone like that, the kind of way these people are, are thought about. And so there was no question then, when you read this narrative, who is closer to God? The Pharisees who had remained pure or the tax collectors? Do you mind going back to it's, it's okay, you can stay. Ah, okay. And the Pharisees had a way of dividing the world up that was uh, very simple. They would divide the world into the categories of righteous and sinners. Righteous, close to God, sinners, far away from God. And so the question then that comes to Jesus in verse 17, uh, verse 16 rather, is why, why Jesus are you endorsing these greedy, uh, capitalistic traitors, the tax collectors, by eating at the table with them? And Jesus responds in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm actually going to put you down. You're a bit heavy, but you can stay here. So Jesus accepts the Pharisees' categories of sinner and of righteous. But do you see what he does there? He says, yeah, I accept that, but I'm not after the righteous. I'm after the sinners. That's who I came for. I think actually, despite uh, all the changes in culture and context and religion since then, I think we still fundamentally divide the world up uh, in the very same ways today. It's amazing how often when you're uh, sharing uh, about Jesus with someone, how often people uh, will say something like this. So you're sharing the, the need to believe in Jesus, and they'll say something like, 
Well, I'm, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus. Uh, he may exist, he may not. If he does exist, I think I'm, I'm going to be okay at the end. I think I'll be okay with God because God knows I try my best. Tobes, can you... Um, yeah, so uh, people will instinctively uh, sort of talk about the fact that they'll be okay with God because they try their best and they do good. And very often what that's followed with is unlike this other group of people. And so I was talking to someone down at uh, Dark Mofo a couple of weeks ago and she was saying, well, I'm trying and I'm, I'm working on the, the climate change issue and I'm struggling with this and, I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm trying to give of my money and I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And I think she was very sincere in what she was saying. But then she was saying, I'm, it's not like I'm like some politician. I'm not like the billionaires who don't care. I'm righteous and there are these other sinners. Or other people will say, it's not like I'm a, a bogan who beats their wife. You know, I'm, I, I do the best I can, so I'll be okay before God. And what's startling is that the one characteristic that we as human beings in instinctively cite as the reason that we'll be okay with God at the end is actually the one characteristic that Jesus says is worthless to him. The one characteristic that Jesus says actually excludes you from God. He says, I didn't come to call the good, but the bad. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why is it that Jesus didn't come to call the good? Because human goodness is actually always an illusion. And it's an illusion that will evaporate at the judgment of God. And you can imagine it now. I mean, if you think about that, that passage that I quoted from the beginning, at the beginning from Daniel chapter 7. You imagine standing before the Ancient of Days, God on the throne, fire coming out of his eyes, his hair like white wool because of his purity and his righteousness. And actually standing before God and saying to him, look, God, look, Largely, I acknowledge I have ignored you. I have lived as if you don't exist. But I've got a strong moral compass and I've, uh, I've tried my best to live up to that. Admittedly, I've been inconsistent here and there. I've been kind of hypocritical. I've bent the rules here and there. But that's enough, right? That's enough, right, for you, God? And the truth is that wasn't enough for the Pharisees even who kept the law of God meticulously and it won't be for us. That's not enough. And so Jesus says, actually, your only hope of being right before God then at the judgment is to confess that you're not right with God now. You don't uh, get, try and get better uh, and try and get more healthy so that a GP will accept you to have an appointment and deal with you. You don't clean yourself up before you go to the GP. Jesus says, I'm the good physician you come to me sick and you come to me for one reason only because you acknowledge that you're sick and so that's what we need to do acknowledge that we're sick now and trust uh, our good physician to competently administer the cure so secondly jesus has authority to define true devotion to god jesus has authority to define true devotion to god and now we get to two questions that are asked of jesus one about fasting and one about the Sabbath. If you look down again at the passage, Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Uh, In the Old Testament law, there was one appointed day of fasting. It was the Day of Atonement. Uh, And that was the day in which you had to fast. But by the time uh, that this was being written, the Pharisees were fasting not just once a year or multiple times a year, but they would fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday. And it's likely uh, from the context here that John's disciples were probably doing the same. And so the question is quite obvious. Well, you, Jesus, and your disciples, you seem like a sect that are devoted to God as well. Why don't you fast? And Jesus gives two answers. One is about timing. You see there in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is again, I mean, at this stage in Mark, everything's obscured, but this is an enormous claim to authority from from Jesus. He's saying, your religious practice of fasting that is actually the cornerstone of the most righteous followers of God, he says, that is actually not appropriate right now. And it's not appropriate right now simply because I'm here. The one for whom history has waited is here, the bridegroom, and now is a time of celebration. Fasting is not relevant. But then the second answer he gives gets into this issue of of the wineskins. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Dad explained uh, that the image there of of what was happening with the wineskins, essentially, uh, wineskins would expand is the issue. Wineskins would expand with the wine as it would ferment. And so if after you've drunk the new wine, you pour old wine, uh, new wine into an, into an old wineskin, uh, there's nowhere for the old wineskin to expand to, and so it would just burst. And so what Jesus is saying here is that I'm doing something new, and you need new containers, new receptacles, new categories, if you like, new understandings in order to get what I'm doing. Now, don't think this is about an Old Testament, New Testament thing. It's not. Again, fasting is not a big deal in the Old Testament. It's commanded only once a year. It's something much simpler. Jesus is contrasting here what old versus new understandings are of devotion to God. What does it look like to be devoted to God? And he's saying, you have an old understanding and you need a new one. The Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, for all of their differences, and undoubtedly there were many, they had this in common. Their devotion to God was marked by withdrawal, sacrifice, and self-control. So uh, you might remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the Pharisee uh, marks out his devotion to God by saying, I'm not like this tax collector. I'm withdrawn. I'm separate from this tax collector. And the reason is because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have. Withdrawal sacrifice, self-control. And John, uh, where was John based? Where was John's ministry? It was out in the wilderness. It was separated from the people. And his diet was one of locusts and wild honey. It um, It was a restricted diet and he was known for his fasting. So fasting, if you like, is one element of that picture. Devotion to God is about 
what you don't do, and it's about your withdrawal. But what did devotion to God look like for Jesus and his disciples? Well, we just saw it, didn't we? It looked like feasting. It looked like feasting in the house of the tax collectors. It looked like constantly being surrounded by crowds and being distracted, uh, sometimes even from prayer, even from good things, being distracted to serve these people. For Jesus, devotion to God wasn't about withdrawal and it wasn't about sacrifice mainly. For Jesus and his disciples, it was about firstly loving engagement with needy people. Loving engagement with needy people. And I wonder, and this is speculative, I wonder though whether Jesus had in his mind as he gave this answer, his favourite prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah 58 and what Isaiah says there about uh, fasting. Here in Isaiah 58, God is actually condemning the people of Israel because they're fasting, strictly speaking, they're fasting, they're not eating food, but actually their hearts are not engaged in the fast that he wants. Here's what he says. Isaiah 58 verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Listen to this. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The fast that God actually wanted was one of engagement in the needs of the people around. And, and Jesus said, this is the new wineskin you need. This is a new understanding of devotion to God that you need to understand me. Now, none of that erases uh, the need for fasting. Jesus does say that the uh, disciples will fast when he goes. But now they will not fast out of mere uh, religious devotion, but they will fast out of desperation. Did you notice he says, when I am taken away, they will fast. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The disciples fast to seek the face of the bridegroom. The bridegroom has been taken away and they need to hear from him. And so out of simple and childlike desperation, they fast and pray. But what does your devotion to God look like then, I wonder? What marks your devotion to God? Is it mainly about what you don't do? Is it mainly about... Uh, the, those commands that you keep about what you shouldn't be doing? Is it mainly about simply you and God and your own devotion to him? Or is your devotion to God marked, as Jesus was, by practically loving, unlovable and despised people? Jesus' ministry was filled with constant interruptions. No one ever came to him at a good time. No one ever came to him at a convenient time. But he always took time and he was always uh, compassionate toward those who came. And we as his disciples should be marked in that same way. Uh, on to the Sabbath. And we, we will speed up as we go along, so don't be alarmed. Uh, on to the question of the Sabbath. And Jesus gives two stories which we can't go into, but thankfully he gives us a principle that we can. Uh, Mark 2 verse 27 Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. Now, I want to take um, these three statements that he makes here in reverse order. So firstly, Jesus says he is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, this is a, a startling claim to authority because the Sabbath, as we can see in these stories, was a very important thing uh, to the Jewish people. They believed it was instituted by God himself. It was of utmost importance. It was given to them by Moses, whom they revered. And now Jesus claims that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath. This Sabbath, this uh, day of rest that was given to the people of Israel, Jesus is saying, is not governed by the law of God, firstly, nor is it governed by our own convenience as disciples, but it's governed first and foremost by Jesus himself. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Interestingly, this fits with what is spoken about the Sabbath later on in Romans chapter 14, a very important passage about observing the Sabbath. And there Paul says, uh, not that we can choose to do it or not as we decide, but he says this, this is very important. He says, whoever observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. And whoever does not observe the day then by implication does not observe it in honour of the Lord. Yes, we are free to either observe the Sabbath day or not, but either way, it shouldn't be for our own convenience. It should be out of reverence for the Lord. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but secondly, Jesus says we are not made for the Sabbath. This was the error of the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees had put all sorts of extra rules on the Sabbath because they wanted to make it impossible, basically, to break the command to rest on the Sabbath day. These were not laws given by the Old Testament, but ones that they had added on top. And we see in the stories that are given here that, ironically, the rules that they had added were actually anti-Sabbath rules. What we have here is two cases of human need. The first one is a, a matter of simple hunger, and the second is a matter of a man with a withered hand who desperately needs healing. And in both cases, the rules the Pharisees had put on top of the Sabbath stopped those human needs from being met. And did you notice Jesus' emotional reaction to this? Have a look at Mark 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Let me ask you, how do you experience the emotions of anger and grief simultaneously? How do you do that? How do you have this righteous, furious indignation and anger and also heartbroken grief at the same time? It's what uh, a friend of ours uh, named Don George, who's preached here a couple of times, calls orthopathy. Do you remember that term that he gave? Orthopathy. We talk as Christians about orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, that means right action. And he coined this term orthopathy, which means right feeling. And our Lord Jesus had orthopathy in spades. He always not just did the right thing, not just believed the right thing, but he always felt the right thing. When the crowds came, he was always stirred up to compassion. And here, when the Pharisees were standing in the way of human needs being met, he felt grief and anger at the same time. Now, if there's one thing we need in confronting um, the challenges of our day, say in the political realm, in which there's so much anger and there's so much squabbling and there's a lot of self-righteousness from Christians and from non-Christians alike, what we need more than anything is orthopathy. 
We see a lot of anger, but do we see much grief? We see a lot of yelling, but do we see many tears? We need to plead with God, plead with Christ for orthopathy like he had. And finally, Jesus says, and this is why I want to go in reverse order, because he ends here, I guess, with the promise. He says, actually, the Sabbath is made for man. We're not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for us. The Sabbath is actually a gift. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, and he gave us that same pattern. You can work six days and rest one day. It's a gift to humanity. So I want to give you an invitation here. Not a command, of course. The Sabbath is not a command for Christians, but an invitation to set aside a day for rest and worship. I think it's actually never more needful than today, in which we've got notifications pinging on our phone constantly, in which there are always things to do. To actually clear out a day and say, today I do no work. I answer no emails. I uh, respond to no business texts. If I find housework extremely taxing, I do no housework on this day. If I find grocery shopping uh, something that actually takes it out of me, I do no grocery shopping on this day. You'll have your own list of things that are taxing. But just to remove those things and to say today is a day for worship. Uh, My practice of Sabbath is largely inconsistent and uh, very loose, um, but I love it. I do absolutely no work. I, I answer no emails. I do nothing uh, work-wise, uh, the, the boys and I will cook pancakes and we'll, we'll read uh, Psalm 34. Uh, I'll try to stay off social media and that's about it. And it's a gift to me because I know that work is not an option for that day and therefore I don't think about work. It's a day to think about the Lord. And yet, if a human need arises, we must always recognise that trumps our Sabbath rest, whatever it is. Finally, Authority over rival spiritual powers. Now here I almost want to cover nothing from the end of chapter 3 here because uh, we're out of time and because Jared spoke extensively about uh, demons, the demonic, last week. There's plenty there. I just want to pick up on one element of this final uh, passage. The unforgivable sin. It's the one that your eyes are always drawn to here, isn't it? The unforgivable sin. Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Before we uh, speak about the unforgivable sin, note that first thing that Jesus says. It is so beautiful and so crucial that all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And all blasphemies that they utter will be forgiven. Here's what J.C. Ryle says about that thought. He says, These words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth and age the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of black backsliders from Christ like Peter, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ cleanses all away. 
the righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. It's like Jesus said before, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And if we will, with courage, actually only reveal our sin to God, not do anything about it, not cleanse it, not deal with it, simply reveal our sin to God and say, I am sick, the blood of Christ will cleanse all the way. That's the promise. Every sin will be forgiven, every blasphemy, but one. Why did he have to say that? But one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And many Christians uh, tie themselves up in knots thinking, maybe I've committed this sin though. Well, it's quite clear what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I think, is here from the context. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is deliberately and consistently attributing the obvious work of God to the devil. And that's what we see here in the context. Verse 22, the scribes who came from Jerusalem were saying, that means that was something that they didn't say once, but that they said repeatedly. The scribes were saying, this was the thing they said about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. In other, in other words, they know he's casting out demons. They know he's doing miraculous works, but they're repeatedly slurring him by saying, it's by the power of the devil. In other words, this is not a sin that you can commit by accident. So if you're of, a, of an anxious disposition, breathe easy. It's not a sin that you could have accidentally committed when you're six and then lingers with you. It's a sin of willful uh, attributing of the works of God to the devil. But there is a caution for us here. We are a church, I think, in which uh, there are some people who are really operating and moving in the gifts of the Spirit, and they love that kind of stuff. And we're a church also, and I think this is a glorious truth, who also uh, have people who, who are not so sure of those things, and yet we exist harmoniously. Those of us who are of a more skeptical nature need to be very careful about how we speak about the Spirit's work. Uh, a mistake that I've often made is, by, is thinking, if something's weird or something makes me uncomfortable, it's probably not of God. And yet, if you actually read through the Bible beginning to end, you could make a case that the surest marker of the work of God is weirdness and that it makes you uncomfortable. That's what the Spirit of God does. So we mustn't be undiscerning, but we also shouldn't be instantly dismissive of anything that's strange and out of our comfort zone. It is a spirit that leads us to Christ and we need to be wary of grieving the spirit. The text leaves us um, with a question. Jesus is, uh, has authority to choose his own disciples. He has authority to define what true righteousness is and he has authority over the evil powers, the, the uh, rival spiritual powers. But where does he derive this authority from? And at the end of this passage, we get uh, something that's very characteristic of Mark. It's like a sandwich of stories. He starts a story in verse 20 about his family, Jesus' family, coming to get him because they thought he was crazy. And then he interrupts that story in verses 22 uh, through to 30 with that story of the scribes and the unforgivable sin. And then he comes back to the story of the family and they arrive to seize him. This happens about eight or nine times in Mark. It's a very deliberate literary device. And what it's designed to do is to point us to the common theme in the two stories, the link. And the link here is verse 21 and 30. Uh, you get the exact same structure of the sentence. Verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
And in verse 30, the scribes were saying, he has an unclean spirit. At this point in Mark, again, we're in the dark as to who Jesus is, but we have some early theories. His family, his own family, think he's crazy. Uh, In other words, he has no authority. Where does he derive his authority from? He has no authority. He thinks he does in his mind, but he doesn't. But if that's true, where do the healings come from? Why are the crowds constantly trying to get around him? The scribes say he's actually got an unclean spirit. In other words, his authority comes from uh, an evil source. But if that's true, where does he get that orthopathy from, that compassion for the crowds? Where do his teachings come from that have resonated through history until the present day as the pinnacle of human ethics and morals? Ironically, the only group that get Jesus' identity correct at this early stage are the demons. Chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And so my prayer for you is that you will recognize that authority of Jesus as not just a human being, not just a son of man, but as the son of man who has all authority in heaven and on earth and as the very son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, um, your word tells us that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. And Jesus, you said that your words are spirit and life. And Lord, I feel as if my words are very inadequate to point to your authority, your reality. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray that by your spirit, you would drive home the implications of who you are to every heart in this room. Lord, that we would see you clearly, like Levi, that we would look up from whatever our tax booth is, our place of business, our various distractions, we'd look up and actually see you for who you are. And that in seeing you, you would call us to follow and we would respond instantly. And we pray all of this in your strong name. Amen.